So what we're going to talk about today is some experimental techniques for improving the sensitivity and selectivity of the basic spectroscopy measurement, which is measuring the absorption as a function of frequency of some material. Okay, so there's uh, three different methods we'll talk about that improve the sensitivity of this basic measurement, frequency modulation, and then two techniques that involve having a resonant cavity to increase the interaction length of an object and uh, the light. And then depending on how long it takes to get through this, we'll either go through this today or next time, but we'll talk about some methods where you're not actually measuring the absorption directly, but you're measuring indirect effects of the absorption. Like if you excite an atom into an excited state, it will then decay into a lower state, giving off fluorescence. And you can detect that fluorescence rather than detecting the absorption directly. And in some situations, that's more desirable to do. Okay, so let me remind you of what our canonical experiment looks like. We've got a laser that we can tune the frequency of. And we have some method of measuring that frequency so that we know what we're uh, what we've got coming out of the laser. And then we've got some sample of material that we want to study. And we look at the light that goes through that sample and we can detect the irradiance and then plot the irradiance as a function of frequency. And as we tune the laser, you'd expect to see dips in the irradiance that correspond to the absorption lines of the sample. Okay, so we're starting with that as our um, sort of our straw man design for a spectroscopy experiment where we want to understand the energy levels of a material. Um, one of the things you might ask yourself is, um, how sensitive are you to absorption? So what's the minimum density of material in here that you can detect? So one of the reasons you might want to know that is you might have some chemical reaction going on here and you want to observe the reactants or the products and you might want to know how long you need to wait in order for there to be a detectable quantity of material or um, how sensitive are you you know, can you detect trace elements of things or do you need a, a larger quantity? And so to understand that, we can look at the transmitted intensity. It, of course, depends on how much intensity we put in and then the amount of absorption. So the absorption obey, obeys Beer's law. It says that there's this uh, exponential decay in the transmitted intensity or in the transmitting intensity as it goes through the, the sample. So if the sample has a length L, and an absorption coefficient of alpha. And we saw last time that that's going to be a function of frequency. So there's going to be some, some spectral shape to that absorption coefficient. It can be Gaussian or Lorentzian and can have some width that depends on the mechanisms that might broaden it. Um, but in any event, we have this expression for the transmitted intensity. And if this is a small amount of absorption, we can approximate this exponential as one e to the x is 1 plus x, so it's first order Taylor series. And here our argument is negative, so we have 1 minus the argument rather than 1 plus. And so this quantity 
is the fraction of the absorbed light times the incident light, that is the amount of irradiance that is absorbed. We'll call that delta I. And we can relate the absorption coefficient to the cross-section of the absorbing species, whether it be atoms or molecules. The absorption cross-section was sort of how big of an obstruction each atom or molecule appeared to produce for the incident beam. And delta N was the relative population density. The fact that it's a delta N tells us it's the population difference between the upper state and the lower state. And so a population density times a cross-section always gives us an absorption coefficient. You can think of it as this. This is units of area. This is units of number per volume. So the units on this are per, the dimensions are per length. The units would be like per meter or per centimeter which match up with the absorption coefficient. Okay, so making that relation, we can plug in this expression here for alpha, and we can solve for the minimum amount of population density we need, or the population density we need to see a given change in intensity. Okay, so this term right here, times I naught is the change in intensity. And so plugging in this expression and solving for N, N, or really that should be delta N, has to be greater than the minimum detectable intensity difference divided by I naught L sigma. All right, so the smaller a change in intensity you can see, the Fewer, or the lower density you're able to detect, the more sensitive you are. The larger the molecules are, or the more, you can think of this as the more likely they are to absorb, the smaller concentration you can detect. The greater your interaction length, the smaller concentration you can detect. And the greater intensity that you put in, the smaller concentration you can detect. So we generally want the path length to be long. That's one of the things that we have control over. We want the relative intensity that we can see, delta I over I, to be small. We want to be sensitive to a small relative change in the laser power. And then sigma we don't have any control over. That's just a property of the material. Look here. Well, so two things. Delta I is, is I naught minus IT. So it's the, it's the difference, it's the amount of power that's absorbed. Okay. Um, and delta I min is the minimum change in power that you can resolve because what happens is your detector has noise on it. Right? So there's some fluctuations in here that are just noise on the detector. And your change in power needs to be larger than that noise. So that noise sets, sets a criteria for where that minimum detectable signal will be.
Okay, now, one of the common sources of noise is called 1 over f noise. It's not really a source of noise, it's just a description of a variety of noise sources that manifest themselves in virtually any experiment that you do. Um, anything that you're trying to measure, whether it be a mechanical motion, whether it be optical uh, light, anything you try to measure will usually have higher noise at lower frequencies. This is a plot of the noise spectrum. So the height of this plot tells you how much noise there is. This is a log-log plot. And this axis is frequency axis. It's a log-log plot. So um, this shows a 1 over f noise source. As the frequency decreases by a factor of 10, the noise power increases by a factor of 10. Which doesn't seem to be represented by that axis. That should be a 1 over f plot. That was supposed to be a 1 over f plot. And it's not. Um, imagine that were 1 over f. Imagine that going from here to here on this scale represented an increase of 10. The reason that's the case, sort of very generally speaking, is that everything that interacts with your experiment is, can be treated as, a, as an oscillator. It can be disturbed from equilibrium by external forces and can wiggle around. And the kinetic energy of something that's moving around is like 1 half mv squared. And in terms of something that's undergoing simple harmonic oscillation, the velocity is omega a, where a is the amplitude of oscillation. And so it tells you the kinetic energy is proportional to omega, uh, omega squared and a squared. So if you have thermal energy distributed among all the atoms and molecules in your laboratory, then what you can expect is that they're all going to be moving around. All the modes of oscillation essentially have the same amount of energy. The equipartition theorem tells us that. And as a result, the amplitude of any mode of oscillation is inversely proportional to the frequency. So the amplitude at which things move around is inversely proportional to the frequency at which they're moving around. That's just for thermal vibrations. And as a result, your laser bouncing off of a mirror that's moving around with thermal motion, or um, the voltage noise in a detector that comes from uh, Johnson noise in a resistor, like random current, random uh, thermal motion of electrons moving across the resistor producing voltage. Those all behave in a manner like this and give rise to a noise that's greater at lower frequencies because the same amount of energy can produce larger motions of things. And so there's all sorts of sources of this noise, but it all manifests itself in the fact that if you take a photodetector and you look at the noise coming out of it, it'll always have this 1 over f behavior. So at some point, when the noise falls off 
below a certain threshold, there will be some other noise source which is dominant. Okay? And if you have enough, well, if you don't have enough power, this will usually be what's called the dark noise of the detector. It's just some property of the detector. You can look it up when you purchase a detector what the dark noise is. It's usually some number of nanovolts per root hertz or picovolts per root hertz. And that's what we call a white noise. It has essentially no structure in the frequency spectrum. So it's the same noise level at all frequencies. If you turn up your power, you can eventually get the laser shot noise to exceed that. And then that's the, the source that would limit your noise at high frequencies. But at low frequencies, the noise is higher, is, is what I want you to take away from this. And as a result, measurements made at low frequency, like what I'm describing here, tend to have lower signal to noise ratio. Okay, so this experiment that we're showing here basically sent is a DC measurement. The laser is being sent in, and the power coming through the sample is being measured for some length of time. And that length of time is, is slow compared to the corner frequency of that plot. It might be a second or on the order of a second. Um, and typically, this 1 over F noise um, for optical experiments has a frequency of around a megahertz or so, 1 to 10 megahertz, at which, um, at which the noise stops decreasing. So unless you're making a measurement here that's um, very short, on the order of microseconds, then you're going to be uh, limited by that 1 over F noise. Okay, so one method around this is what's called frequency modulation spectroscopy, or FM spectroscopy. And the idea is that you have this, this absorption spectrum that comes from whatever mechanism limits the line width of the uh, absorbing material. And if instead of just trying to tune the laser slowly across this, this spectrum, recording a value for the absorption at each point, if instead what you do is you scan it back and forth very rapidly. Rapidly might mean megahertz, so some RF frequency, millions of times a second. Then what you're going to see is um, the power coming out is going to vary at the same frequency that you're changing the, uh, the laser frequency. So for example here, this sine wave represents the change in the laser frequency as a function of time. And if the average frequency of the laser is sitting on the side of the absorption spectrum, or the, the absorption line, then as the laser frequency oscillates, it's going to cause the absorbed power to also oscillate. And so essentially, the magnitude of this um, of this wave, this, this is a wave in the uh, power. This represents the power being absorbed as a function of time. So the peak-to-peak -peak value of the detected power compared to the peak-to-peak -peak value of the frequency that you put in gives you the slope of that curve at the center frequency. Okay, so if you imagine modulating the laser frequency over here where the slope is zero, as it moves back and forth the absorbed power is zero. Right? There's no, no amplitude to the absorbed power wave. 
Over here, where the peak or the slope is sort of a maximum, you get the maximum change in the absorbed power. When you're right on resonance, where the slope is zero, as you dither the frequency back and forth, it doesn't change the power significantly. It's a second order effect. And so the, um, the power is essentially constant. So again, the output power would be, the change in the output power would be zero. And then over here, the phase of the sine wave for the output power is the opposite as that of the, uh, as that of the driving wave. So if I take the same uh, oscillating frequency and instead center it over here, instead of, uh, when the frequency is getting lower, instead of increasing the absorbed power, it's going to decrease the absorbed power. So that would represent a negative slope on that curve. So by observing the output power and comparing it to the driving frequency, you can compare the amplitude and phases and determine the magnitude and sine of the slope of this curve. Okay, so this is what you would measure. And this is the slope of this curve. Of course, you can integrate that to get the absorption spectrum. Or you can just use this curve as it is. You can see where the, the zero crossing corresponds to the peak. So you can directly detect the, uh, the resonant frequency of this material. And you can also show that from this peak to this minimum is exactly one line width. Corresponds exactly to one full width half max, if that's a Lorentzian line profile. Okay, so you can actually work with this, this derivative spectrum directly. So the experimental apparatus is shown up here, um, in sort of block dia diagram for you form. You have your tunable laser and some frequency modulator that that dithers that frequency back and forth. The laser passes through your sample cell and into your detector. So what your detector sees is some, um, some power with some RF modulation on it. That modulation is compared to the frequency modulation that's driving the laser by a lock-in amplifier. So a lock-in amplifier detects the signal in this detector that's at the frequency given by this modulator. And it gives you some amplitude, which is what you record as the laser this average laser frequency is tuned across that line. And that's how this, this plot is traced out. So we can understand this mathematically by looking at the Taylor series for this absorption profile. Just in very general terms, the Taylor series looks like this. It has the term evaluated at the point you're expanding around, and then it has a linear term, which depends on the, on the slope, and a second order term, which depends on the, the curvature. And we can plug that Taylor series in to our expression for the transmitted power. The transmitted power looks like um, Let me remind you that alpha of omega looks like alpha at omega naught plus d alpha d omega evaluated at omega equals omega naught times 
omega minus omega naught plus higher order terms. So when I say that the transmitted intensity equals I naught times 1 minus alpha of omega, I can plug in term by term into this expression. This is the absorption coefficient on resonance. And when I plug that in, I get the transmitted intensity on resonance, which is what I'm calling this first term. IT at 0 That really should be d omega and t. Anyhow, when I plug in the next term in here for alpha, I get a term for the transmitted intensity that depends on the derivative of the alpha versus omega term. And so if I plug in the general expression for the nth term of a Taylor series, I get i naught l times that nth term. And so what you can see is that there's, if my frequency detuning is a um, sinusoidal perturbation around the center frequency, omega minus omega naught, I call that d omega and let that be m sine omega t, then each successive term of the Taylor series is going to have a component which goes as sine omega t to the mth power where m is the nth term of the Taylor series. Okay, so what that means is there's a term to the Taylor series that has a first order dependence on d omega, and that gives rise to a signal at frequency omega. Because when I plug in the perturbation around the, the resonant frequency, that looks like sine omega t, so I have a term which, which is proportional to sine omega t. So whatever the amplitude of that term is, that's the signal when I evaluate it at omega. That's the, that's the coefficient in front of sine omega t in my signal. When I evaluate the second order term, I'm going to have my detuning squared, or m sine omega t squared. So I have sine, a term which looks like sine squared. So sine squared looks like one minus it's like one minus cosine of two theta, something like that. That gives rise to a term at twice the RF frequency. And so likewise, every additional term in the Taylor series approximation gives rise to some signal at that multiple of the modulation frequency. So what that tells me is I can measure the magnitude of the first order term, and that's proportional to the derivative of alpha of omega, which is what we just talked about. If I measure the second order term, that's going to be proportional to the curvature of alpha over omega. 
the third order term is the third order, so you can extract you can extract the information about what the line profile looks like from any of the harmonics of the uh, of the modulation. Okay, so let's see this in action. Here is an absorption spectrum measured where the amount of absorption was 0.05%. So is that five part, 0.5 parts per thousand? Uh, it's a water overtone absorption line. And this is measured in this method, basically DC absorption measurement. And then this is the same measurement made with, um, with FM modulation spectroscopy, FM spectroscopy. So you can see how much better the signal and noise is here than it is there. And here the, the signal that we were trying to observe is only a few times larger than the noise. And here it's, the noise really isn't even visible on this plot. Uh, this would be frequency. So what, what is it? I thought absorption depends on frequency. It does. So what's that uh, that's probably either the total power absorbed integrated across this line width, or it could be the power absorbed on the center. I don't know. It's just I grabbed this plot out of a Demtroder and uh, I don't think it's even explained fully in there. Okay, so let's do an example problem. Calculate some of this on our own. Let's say we have a photodetector illuminated by a 100 milliwatt CW dye laser at 500 nanometers. So it'll look like this experiment here. This is 500 nanometers. And this is 100 milliwatts. I should say this is 100 milliwatts going into the sample. And if you observe, if you take out the sample and you just observe what this photodetector sees, you could measure some voltage as a function of time on an oscilloscope. It's got some value that comes from the fact that this is being illuminated by some power, so there's some voltage that is proportional to that power, and then there's some fluctuation which doesn't come from the laser, because we're assuming that the laser has a constant power here, but that fluctuation comes from some noise that's either in the photodetector itself or in the ambient light that's illuminating the photodetector, but for our purposes it's just, it's inherent in the measurement. And so if we take the Fourier transform of this, we can plot the frequency spectrum, and on a log-log plot, it looks like this. At low frequencies, there's some constant value. At high frequencies, there's some constant value, which is much lower. And in between, it falls off as 1 over f. Okay, so this is, this is typical. Um, we're told a little bit about those values. Below 1 kilohertz, the noise is 10 to the minus 4 volts per hertz. So this frequency right here is 1 kilohertz.
and above, well, it doesn't tell us above what frequency it levels out. It says above 1 kilohertz, the noise falls off as 1 over f. So on a log-log plot, this is what we'd see. Constant below 10, uh, 1 kilohertz falling off with a slope of minus 1 above that. So we can write the voltage noise above 1 kilohertz. Looks like for F greater than, and that's uh, 10 kilohertz divided by F. Okay, below a kilohertz, the voltage noise is constant above a kilohertz, it starts at that value when f equals 10 to the 3 hertz. And above 10 to the 3 hertz, it falls off as 1 over f. So this is my mathematical expression for that. Um, a couple things that, worth, that are worth explaining are these units, right? volts per root hertz. Whenever we deal with noise, we're always going to see these units of per root hertz. Okay? If we're doing it with voltage noise, it's volt per root hertz. If it's the power noise, it's watts per root hertz. Um, but noise is all ex expressed in per root hertz. And the reason for that is um, noise is a random process. Right? And if you average a random process for a long period of time, you will average out the fluctuations. The longer you average, the more you will average out the fluctuations. Okay, so the amount of noise you detect depends on how long you average it. If you average for a long period of time, you can average out the noise to any arbitrary level you want. The longer you average, the less the noise becomes. Okay? Because you're averaging over random fluctuations. They, they average out. So what's useful is expressing how large the noise is in some way that's independent of how long you average. One way of doing that is saying, how much noise would there be in a one-second average? And that way you can compare different, say, the noise of different photodetectors in a manner that's independent of the measurement itself. And that's essentially what this, these units are, is they tell you how much noise, how much, volt, how much RMS voltage you would measure in a one second measurement. The actual RMS voltage that you would measure in a, measure, in a measurement of length delta t would equal whatever this noise level is times, um, I'm sorry, divided by the square root of delta t. Okay, so the longer you measure, the smaller your observed noise will be. 
And you have to measure four times as long to reduce the noise by a factor of two. If you want to reduce the noise by a factor of 10, you have to average for 100 times longer. So the units on this are volts per root hertz, which is the same thing as volts times root seconds, divided by root seconds. Okay, so you could also write this as the spectral noise times the square root of the bandwidth of your measurement. So if you measure for one millisecond, you're measuring with a bandwidth of one kilohertz. You can resolve frequencies that differ by one kilohertz. Okay, so a lot of instruments will allow you to set the bandwidth, the resolution bandwidth. So if you're plotting, so on an oscilloscope, you can set the sample time, which is the scale for this x-axis. Right, it's one of, one of the two dials that lets you scale the plot. On a spectrum analyzer, which is functionally equivalent to oscilloscope, it just measures the Fourier transform of the time series, you can change the resolution bandwidth, which is the axis of this plot, of this axis. That is delta F. So if this sample length is delta T, this sample length is delta F. It's the frequency difference between successive points plotted in this plot. Okay, so in this measurement, we are measuring for 100 seconds. So that's sort of a reasonable time where you might be able to average your measurement. So it's, it's relatively long, um, but it's short enough that you would expect um, for example, the air conditioning not to turn on or turn off over the course of 100 seconds and change the temperature in the room or someone to open the door. It can be difficult to do extremely long measurements in, in a typical laboratory. Okay, so let's figure out the minimum detectable concentration that you can measure directly in this type of experiment. So first question is, what is delta I over I? So the minimum concentration we can see looks like delta I over I times sigma L, where this is the minimum detectable signal. Okay, so if our intensity in the laser is proportional to the voltage that our photodetector sees, we could also write this as delta V min over V, where these are the voltages measured by our detector. Okay, so our signal is 10 volts. Uh, we also know sigma and we know L. So those are things we're told. And we just need to figure out what the minimum voltage fluctuation we can measure, or the amount of voltage fluctuation we have due to the noise, and then our signal will have to be greater than that. What's that? Uh, not exactly. 
It's related to this. 10 to the minus 4 is the noise spectral density. But in order to turn that into an actual voltage, we need to divide it by the square root of the time. So our, we measure for 100 seconds. So it's actually going to be 10 times smaller than that. Because we average for a long period of time, we reduce the noise. 10 to the minus 5. That's going to be 10 to the minus 5 volts. So you can see the units are going to give us per centimeter cubed. So that's a number density. And works out to 10 to the 12 molecules per centimeter cubed. If we wanted to measure a smaller concentration, we'd have to observe for a longer period of time. If we want to measure more rapidly, then we have to have a higher concentration of molecules. So if you're observing like a chemical reaction, and you're trying to observe some intermediate product that only exists for a short period of time, you may not be able to integrate you know, as long as you might like. If you're trying to measure something um, that's not necessarily in the laboratory, and if you're trying to measure the emission that comes out of a tailpipe of a car as the car drives by, maybe you're an EPA police, uh, you may not have 100 seconds to integrate, so you need higher concentration. Okay, part B. If we use frequency modulation instead, what frequency would we want to modulate at? So the higher we go in frequency, the lower the noise will be, up to a point. Eventually, this detector noise will fall below the inherent noise in the laser. Okay, so all coherent sources of light have shot noise. Shot noise comes from the Poissonian statistics of the photons arriving at the photodetector. And we find that the the noise power divided by the average power, so the relative strength of the noise, goes as 1 over the square to the number of photons you detect. So we derived this in an earlier lecture. So if you want to see the derivation of this, you can go back to uh, one of the first couple weeks of class when we derived this. Okay, so we can write that as a photon flux, the number of photons per unit time, times the integration time. And if we do that, we can then write the power spectral noise as the average power times 1 over the square root of the photon flux. 
And that's a power spectral noise. So in order to turn that into a power, we need to Well, we need to multiply. What's wrong with that? Yeah, so we need, sorry, I just had a brain freeze. So if we take this quantity and then we divide it by the square root of the time that we integrate, we get this expression here, which is the, the noise power. OK, so the number rate of photons is proportional to the power. power is energy per unit time. So if we divide that by the energy in a photon, we get the number of photons per unit time. So the energy of a single photon is HF. So I can rewrite this. I have this power coming inside the square root and in the top of the fraction. F I'll write as C over lambda. So I have an expression for the power spectral density in terms of quantities that I have in my experiment. Right, so I can plug in 500 nanometers. I can plug in my average power, which I think was 100 milliwatts. These are constants in the, new, in the denominator. And I get 2 times 10 to the 8. Uh, 2 times 10 to the minus 8, I'm sorry. Um, I think that was actually 2 times 10 to the minus 9 watts per root hertz. And then if I relate that to a voltage, let me let me rewrite this. The relative fluctuation in power is going to be the same as the relative fluctuation in voltage. And that's going to be lambda over p average hc. And so I solved for that relative fluctuation in voltage and got 2 times 10 to the minus 8 volts per hertz. You could solve for the power. And then use the fact that 100 milliwatts is producing 10 volts. So you have 100 volts per watt. And do the conversion. So I would have had 2 times 10 to the minus 10 
watts per hertz for the power. So that's the voltage noise. Uh, in an electric circuit. This is the optical power. And since the voltage produced by my photodetector is directly proportional to the power, I can say the ratio of the, the power noise relative to the average power is the same as the voltage noise relative to the average voltage. That's all I'm doing there. Okay. So this tells me how much noise I'm going to have at high frequencies. Um, 2 times 10 to the minus 8. So what it says is there's this shot noise that's white noise that exists at all frequencies. And so when you go to a high enough frequency, once the 1 over f noise has fallen below that, then you're no longer able to improve the noise level by going to higher frequencies. So the noise level will be 2 times 10 to the minus 8 volts per hertz at any frequency above this corner frequency. So the question asks what frequency we need to go to. So we just need to solve for what that corner frequency is. And I had written out an expression right here for the voltage noise as a function of frequency so that when I got to this point, I could set it equal to 2 times 10 to the minus 8 and solve for frequency. And then I erased it. But here's that relationship. This is the expression for the 1 over f noise. We're solving for the frequency at which it equals the shot noise. And we get 5 megahertz, which is sort of a typical value. Anywhere from, anywhere from 5 to 100 megahertz would be a value where the uh, 1 over f noise becomes smaller than the shot noise. Depends on how much power you have and such. But. So if you make a measurement at frequencies above 5 megahertz, then you're only going to have this level of noise. So if we make a measurement above 5 megahertz, question C asked at 12 megahertz, so that's in the shot noise limited regime, then what's the minimum detectable concentration? So. We have this expression for the relative, the relative uh, power or the re relative voltage is 2 times 10 to the minus 9 root hertz. Remember, our, our average voltage was 10 volts. And the voltage noise was 2 times 10 to the minus 8 volts per root hertz. So our, our equation for the minimum detectable concentration look like delta i over i times 1 over sigma l. So delta i over i, the minimum change in intensity that we can see relative to the average intensity, well, that's the same as the relative change in power divided by the average power. They're related to each other by a factor of the area of the beam. And that quantity we've evaluated already. So since it's a ratio of intensities, it should be unitless. 
But this isn't unitless. It's per, it should be per square root of hertz. So remember, we need to multiply that by the square root of the bandwidth or divide it by the square root of the, frequent, uh, the measurement time. So let's again assume we measure for 100 seconds. Then this product gives us delta i over i. Sigma and L were given in the problem. So we plug those in and we get an expression for the minimum detectable concentration. It's 2 times 10 to the 8 centimeter cubed. You remember before we had 10 to the 12. So we can detect a concentration that's 5,000 times less concentrated by doing the detection at higher frequencies. And this is a common experimental technique, whether it's in spectroscopy or really any sort of optical measurement. There's always this noise at DC at low frequencies. So if you can take whatever it is you're trying to detect and modulate it at some high frequency, then you detect this, the modulation at that high frequency and you're sensitive, much more sensitive because there's less noise in the system. Anyone else answer this? 10 to the 12. Avogadro's number is like 10 to the 23, right? And that's the number of molecules in a mole. And a mole of air is like 22 cubic, 22 liters, something like that. You can convert that down into per centimeter, but it's going to be on the order of 10 to the 20. So that's really negative. Yeah, so that's, I mean, if that were a gas, that would be a pressure that's very small. That's below sort of the best you could do with a vacuum system or such. But, you know, if it's a partial pressure of some, you know, contaminant in the, in the air, um, you know, that may or may not be that may or may not be significant. There's, there's toxins that can kill you with smaller concentration than that. So. so any questions about the example? Did the units make sense? That's one of the hardest things about working with noise, is getting your hands around these units. Um, if you ever have a chance to play with a, with a, uh, with a spectrum analyzer, it's pretty fun. Um, usually, like undergraduate labs, you use oscilloscopes all the time. No one really, I don't know too many undergraduate labs who get to use a spectrum analyzer. The reason is uh, an oscilloscope costs on the order of 5,000 bucks for a decent one. A spectrum analyzer is about 100,000 bucks for a decent one. Um, but what happens is, it's really neat. When you change the uh, frequency resolution, it takes longer to draw the plot, right? Because the narrower a frequency region, the longer the integration time. So each point needs to be integrated for some length of time. So if you have a one hertz frequency resolution, it takes one second to draw each point. You have a thousand points, 
that's whatever, 15 minutes. Turn it up to a kilohertz, and all of a sudden you can draw that same plot in a second. So one thing that you see is the rate at which it draws it changes, but then the noise, as you turn the frequency bandwidth down, the noise goes down and down and down and down. And the lower you try to make the noise, the longer you have to wait. If you have a signal, the signal doesn't go down as you change the bandwidth, because it's, it's, the longer you average, it doesn't cause the signal to average away. The signal is coherent, it's not incoherent, it's not a random process that, that averages out. So you can understand a lot of these noise parameters more when you play with the experimental equipment. And there's going to be a lab, a graduate optics lab, where we'll do some of this stuff. We're just building it right now. It doesn't exist yet, but... Um, Are we going to have uh, We'll see if we can get one of those. So that'll be next either fall or spring. But if you're around and are interested, I think it'll be an interesting lab. OK, so uh, that was one method of improving the sensitivity, improving the ability to measure small concentrations. Um, there's other techniques that are used. Uh, the other techniques generally involve cavities. So what a cavity does is it essentially causes the light to bounce back and forth between the mirrors multiple times. That increases the interaction length. So if you increase the length, you can detect a smaller concentration. And there's ways to do it where the, um, where the material is put inside of the cavity, inside of the laser cavity. And there's two things that you get, two benefits you get from doing that. If you take your laser and you put the absorbing material on the inside, um, first of all, is the power inside the laser is much greater than on the outside. If your laser has mirrors that transmit 1% of the light and you get one watt out, there must be 100 watts inside. Most laser mirrors, well, it depends on the laser, but can go anywhere from transmitting like 3% of the light to maybe a hundredth of a percent. So the power buildup inside the laser cavity can be anywhere from 30 to 10,000. So you can get much greater power in the cavity. That helps by increasing I. And the other thing that's uh, really nice is the laser is nonlinear. Um, it won't laze unless the gain exceeds the losses. Right? If the gain doesn't exceed the losses, you don't get buildup. So if it's operating right near threshold, so the gain is just greater than the losses, if you introduce extra loss, it can change the behavior of the laser nonlinearly. It can go from on to off by introducing a small fractional increase in the loss. So that can amplify the effect of a small loss. Okay, so we generally talk about um, the power buildup in the laser cavity in terms of the finesse, or the finesse is the quantity that we measure of a cavity. It's the script F. The power buildup is F over pi. And if you know the transmission of a mirror, the power buildup is just one over the transmission of the output coupler. Like I said, if it's a 1% output coupler, 1% of the light transmits through it, you have to have 100 times greater power on the inside than you have on the outside. So 1 over 1% is 100. Um, so placing an absorbing cell inside of the laser cavity is effectively increasing the interaction length by a factor of whatever the power buildup is. The light has to bounce around that many times inside the cavity, so it's like increasing the 
the uh, interaction length. There's other ways to increase the interaction length. There's what's called a Harriet delay line. And essentially, conceptually, it's just a bunch of mirrors. So if you had some absorbing cell, you could send the light in and bounce it back and forth between mirrors several times. And there's some clever geometries where these are actually different spots in the same physical mirror that simplify this geometry a little bit. But um, in this example, the uh, spots, the, the, the laser inside the, the, the absorbing cell is at all different points in the, in the cell. Whereas inside of a cavity, you have the light bouncing back and forth many times, but it's always traveling the same path. And as a result, if you're trying to, for example, image the fluorescence that comes out of the cell, maybe you're looking for the location of some absorbing molecule. Um, in this case, if you detect fluorescence, you really don't know where it came from because your interaction volume is large. But in a cavity, it's much smaller because it's just a single path going back and forth. So it gives you better spatial resolution if you're trying to, uh, trying to infer anything about the location of objects producing fluorescence. Uh, the other advantage was this nonlinearity we talked about. So if the round trip gain of a laser cavity is given by g naught, so g naught would represent um, the power after one round trip in the laser relative to the input power. I can write that down. Well, for, if we have a black box, the gain of the black box is the output power over the input power. And for a laser cavity, we talk about the round trip gain. Then G naught is the gain after going through a full round trip. Last time we talked about the effect of saturation on the line profile. We said that when a uh, material has some population and you pump it hard enough, you can essentially deplete the state that you're pumping from. And it, once that happens, you no longer get absorption. Well, the same thing happens in a laser. If you have a population inversion, such that you have population in the upper state, and you send your laser through, and you stimulate these transitions, that produces gain. If you stimulate away all the population that was available, you'll no longer get gain. So the effective gain gets reduced. So G sub S is the saturated gain, and G naught is the unsaturated gain. So G naught would be the gain that you'd see when you put in a small amount of power, GS is the gain that you see when you have a larger amount of power. So for a power of P, we can express how large that power is relative to some saturation power. And we can relate the saturated gain to the unsaturated gain. So when the input power is small, this term is negligible. The saturated gain is equal to the unsaturated gain. When you turn up the power to infinity, then you get no gain, no additional gain from sending in one more, one more photon. OK. It is a constant. And it comes from the material, well, it comes from the material and how hard you're pumping it. 
So it's something that you'd measure. So it's not necessarily a material property, it's a, it's a property of the system. So it's something you'd have to measure. You measure it by sending in a very weak beam and measuring the output power. Or alternatively, if you measure the output power as a function of the, well, if you set up your laser crystal, or your laser head, you don't put any mirrors around it, so you don't have oscillation. Then you take another laser over here, and you send in a small amount of power, and you measure how much power comes out, this is going to amplify the output power. And it's a function of the input power, you measure the output power, you're going to see a relation that looks like this. Initially, the output power grows faster than the input power, because you get gain. And once it's saturated, then you're no longer getting gain, and for every additional watt you put in, you get one watt out. Okay, so you can slope of this is g naught. The slope at any other point is gs. It's a function of the power. Okay, so we're taking the time to understand this expression because we can um, use this to express the power. Um, if we assume that the laser is operating in the steady state, so we turn it on, it lases, we can measure the power coming out, then we know that the round trip gain has to equal the round trip loss. Essentially what's going to happen is the laser power is going to build up as long as there's gain. It's going to keep building up until it saturates the gain down to the point that the additional power being added every round trip is equal to the amount of power leaking out of the cavity or being absorbed in the absorption cell that's in there. Okay, so the saturated gain will equal the absorption or the, the loss. So A will be the amount of power lost per round trip. So the power added per round trip has to equal the power lost per round trip in the steady state. So we can replace GS with A due to that relationship and solve for P. So the power This could be the power inside the laser cavity, or you could directly relate that to the power measured coming out of the laser cavity, because they're directly related by the transmission coefficient of the output mirror, equals the saturation power times this expression, which is a function of the unsaturated gain and the loss. So A is a round trip fractional power loss. There will be some power loss due to light leaking through the mirrors. There will be some additional power loss due to absorption. So there's G naught. A is equal to 2 alpha L for a round trip. The absorption for one round trip, half length L, plus the transmission coefficient of the output coupler. Well, that's for a round trip. If, if, if it goes there and back, and L is the length of the laser medium. So we can differentiate this and get dP as a function of dA. How much does the power change when the loss changes? So. You differentiate the expression, both sides, 
we can write dp over p is this expression times dA over A. And so you can see that when the losses are near the unsaturated gain, this, this denominator gets small. That makes this factor large. So a small relative change in the loss will produce a large relative change in the output power. That's that nonlinearity that I was talking about. Increasing the loss would it doesn't increase the unsaturated gain. What it does is it as the gain starts to saturate and the gain reduces, it stops saturating at a higher power. Well, if dA is positive and A is positive, I think there should be a negative sign here when I look at this. Because if the, if the loss increases, the power should decrease. The laser power should decrease. And that's not expressed here. So, uh, yeah, so I'll have to check whether the error is in this formula or in the derivative. Uh, so if you plot the laser output power as a function of the pump power, what you see is that there's some threshold, some amount of pump power you need before the laser turns on. And then when it turns on, for every for every watt of, in, in, of, in, of extra pump power, you get some additional output. And as you turn up the pump power, the laser output power goes up, and it starts to saturate. And eventually, it rolls off. And eventually, would even roll off to be flat. If A is bigger than G0, you won't get lasing. This formula assumes that A is less than G0. So the greater the loss is, the more you'll need to pump in order to get it to start lasing. You need to increase the, uh, the inversion. That increases G0. So if the losses are greater, you need to pump more before the laser turns on. And so what you can see here is here's two curves for the laser output power as a function of the, input of the pump power for two different losses. And the output power changes, can change drastically for a small change in the loss. And the closer you get to threshold, 
the greater that change will be. If you're operating way above threshold, these curves converge. So that's just graphically expressing this relationship. Okay, so that's one method of using a cavity to increase the absorption. Another one is with an ex external cavity. So this is not part of the laser. But you have um, a cavity out here. Initially, if you just consider an empty cavity and you send a laser pulse in, so a very short pulse, what you're going to see is an output. The output will be a series of echoes, essentially, of that pulse. There'll be um, one pulse that goes straight through, one that goes around once and then comes out, one that goes around twice. It's just like a series of echoes of the pulse bouncing back and forth inside the cavity. Or alternatively, if you have, a, have the cavity illuminated with the CW laser and then you immediately turn it off, the power coming out of this cavity will have an exponential decay. As the power, the cavity stores up the power as it bounces back and forth. So it's like a low-pass filter. When you turn off the input, that power that's circulating a little bit leaks out in every round trip. And so the power in the cavity decreases by a certain fraction every round trip, and it exponentially approaches zero. Now, if you add something that absorbs light into the cavity, then you're going to reduce the finesse. You're going to reduce the power buildup in the cavity, like we just, expressed, just mentioned. And as a result, the cavity will decay faster. If you think of an echo of a pulse coming in here and bouncing back and forth and echoing, you'll get fewer echoes because the pulse gets absorbed before it can bounce back and forth um, enough times to produce all these echoes. So conceptually, that's sort of what's going on in what's called cavity ring down spectroscopy. So we call this the ringing of the cavity. The series of pulses or this exponential decay as you turn off the input to the cavity. And by measuring the decay time of the cavity, you can infer how much absorption you have inside the cavity. Okay, so we can write, if we initially have the cavity illuminated, it's in the steady state, the cavity is resonant, and then at t equals zero, we turn off the input. So we turn off the laser, and we plot the, or we measure the intensity inside the cavity as a function of time. And here I'll evaluate it after n round trips. So tau sub rt is the round trip time of the cavity, n is some integer number of round trips. You have some intensity in the cavity at time t equals 0. That's a steady state intensity. And after each round trip, you get a fraction of the light leaking out the first mirror, and a fraction leaking out the second mirror, and a fraction being absorbed. And so 1 minus the sum of those fractions is the amount of power that is not lost. That's how much power is retained after one round trip. So after n round trips, the power that's retained is that quantity to the nth power. And so we can solve this expression for n by dividing both sides by the uh, initial cavity intensity and taking the natural log of both sides. That allows that n to come out in front. We can then solve for n. And we'll do it when the intensity of the cavity has decayed to 1 over e of the in initial intensity. That makes this ratio e to the minus 1, and it makes the natural log of that minus 1. So we can 
solve for the case where the left side equals minus 1. And we'll call the number of round trips m. So it's a specific number of round trips. But the light has to go before it decays to 1 over e of its initial intensity. And so this is the value for m. If you know the transmission coefficients and the loss, you can determine m. Or if you can measure m, and you know the transmission coefficients, you can infer the loss. We can make a couple approximations that will allow us to understand this a little better. The first is, um, for a small argument, or first, the natural log of a number that's close to 1 is approximately equal to the number. And so here we have 1 minus some quantity. And if we assume that quantity is small, that's the fractional loss on a round trip. So if there's little loss per round trip, that means we have a high finesse cavity. So if we have a high finesse cavity and low loss, then this term is small, and we can approximate the natural log by this term. So this term is negative. The expression was negative, so the negative signs cancel out. And we get this. That should be an m for the number of round trips it takes for the intensity to decay to 1 over e. And then if we, again, assume that it's a high finesse cavity, that means the transmission coefficients are small. If they're smaller than the round trip loss, then we can neglect these terms and write this as 1 over a. So the number of round trips it takes to decay is 1 over e. The power is 1 over the loss, 1 over the fractional loss. You have 10% loss in each round trip. It's going to take 10 round trips for the power to decay to 1, to 1 over e. So that's the number of round trips. If we multiply by 2L over C, that's the time per round trip. And we get an expression for the, the decay time. And again, in the high finesse case, we can ignore the T1 and the T2, and we can solve for A. So the round trip loss is a function of the cavity length and tau, the measured ring down time. What's that? Well, 2L over C is the round trip time. And this tau, did I already define tau? Tau sub RT is the round trip time. This tau is the ring down time. So that's where we'll end. And uh, one, of the, one of the papers that I asked you to read over spring break involves the uh, cavity ring down spectroscopy. So it'll apply what we talked about today. When we come back after spring break, we'll talk about um, the paper and try to relate the things that are actually going on in, in research right now to some of the concepts we're talking about.